Good morning, Fellowship. Yeah, that's uh, not bad. Not bad. It's a little early, I realize. Well, hey, um, today we are going to actually go back to our study in the Gospel of John. And, uh, but before we get there, I want to give you guys just a little bit of an update. On, uh, I probably should tell you who I am first, right? I'm Larry Kayser, uh, for those who you don't know. And I am the marriage pastor here at Fellowship. And I also uh, have the privilege of serving on our elder team. And so now I can go back to what I was going to do. I want to tell you just a little bit about our follow campaign here before we get back into the Gospel of John. Um, you know, last Sunday was really the first time that people actually had the opportunity to go and fill out one of these follow cards, which really is just expressing your commitment over a three-year period of time, you know, to uh, help us create a home for the Franklin campus and a little bit of some additions to what's going on in the Brentwood campus. And uh, it's been it's pretty exciting. About a third of you have already done that. And so what we're going to do here for the next few weeks is continue to give the opportunity Every Sunday you could come here, you could fill this out, and you could literally drop it in a box out there in the lobby, or you can go online and you can do exactly the same thing, essentially online, and then it's all taken care of right there from your home. And our hope is here for the next three Sundays, uh, we will do this, or at least for the next two Sundays, actually. And October 27th is a Friday, we'll hopefully be the final day where people will submit these uh, commitment cards. And then on Sunday, the 29th, we're going to announce where we're at. We're going to let you know where we're at. And uh, we have, we're encouraged by the first third that's had the opportunity to uh, already do this and to already make their contribution. And just remember that when you do this, it's not, you don't have to give it all now. This is a, a three-year commitment. So you take one small step at a time on a monthly basis. But it really is, uh, it's a wonderful way to envision what's coming in our future. You know, every, everything of significance that was ever built in antiquity, including the temple that Jesus worshipped at, usually took 35, 45, maybe even 100 years to build and complete so in antiquity, whenever they built anything, the ones who were building it knew they were always building it for the next generation. And that's to some degree what we're doing as well. So anyway, you can do this anytime in the, till October 27th to let us know. And we really, you know, this is something, whether you can give a little or give a lot, this is something that we need to do as a whole community so that we are one body pointing in one direction. Anyway, thanks for your generosity in so many different ways over the years. Well, now we get a chance to turn our attention back to the Gospel of John. And where we finished about three or four weeks ago was in John chapter 14. And, you know, John 13, 14, 15, as we get into this section of the Gospel, you know, this all takes place kind of in the last week of Jesus' life. And, and when we get to 14 and 15 here, we're literally getting down to hours before Jesus begins the process of walking to his own death. And so if you look at chapter 14, it begins with this phrase. It's Jesus says to the disciples, let your heart, don't let your heart be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled. And then he proceeds to tell them that he's got to leave, that he's got to go away. 
But as you go down through the entire chapter, you get to the bottom of the chapter, the end of the chapter, and he helps them understand how in the world do you live in this trouble-filled world and not be troubled? And this is what he says at the end of that chapter. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. At this moment when he said, let your heart not be troubled, he's letting them know that God himself in the form of the Spirit is on the way to be with us and to be in us. It's an amazing promise. So if you have your Bibles or your Gospel of John book, open it up to John 15. And we're going to keep going into this story. And it's really a continuation of this really amazing and beautiful metaphor Central to this passage is really is not so much about what Jesus does, but he reminds us profoundly about who he is. So we've got 17 verses to cover this morning, but I'm going to read them all. But what we're going to do is we're going to really focus on the core idea of these 17 verses. And the core idea is what it means to abide in Christ So read along with me here in John 15. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, 
so that you will love one another. This is the living word of God for us this morning. You know, if you stopped and thought for a minute, if you knew that you were down to the last day or two or hours of your life, you know, most of us would think quite thoughtfully if we had the opportunity to really think about what in the world would I want to say What are the words, what are the ideas, what are the images, what do I want to leave in the heart of the people that I care about most, that I love the most, if I knew that I was coming to my final hours? That's what these words represent for Jesus with his disciple. And here's the thing, the imagery in this passage in some ways is uniquely powerful to the first century Jewish ears. Um, You know, when Jesus said, I am the true vine in verse one, the disciples heard something right there that I'm, I'm positive threw them back. Something had to trigger in their mind when they heard that because they spent their entire life as they studied the Torah they knew that what the Old Testament says, and it says it repeatedly, is that Israel, the nation of Israel, the people, the Jewish people, were the true vine. But here's the thing. Everywhere that it's mentioned in the Old Testament, it's always accompanied by judgment, by failure and condemnation for the people. And so... To hear Jesus say, I am the true vine, I'm telling you, it lit something up in them. I want to share with you Psalm 80. This is just one verse of many Old Testament passages where Israel is clearly identified as as the vine. So this is what it says. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. So God, he planted this amazingly huge, powerful vine in the land. And it sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. And then he says, why then have you broken down its walls? So that all who pass along the way just pluck its fruit and the boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it and take from it. This is only one of several places. You can go into Ezekiel, into Isaiah, into Jeremiah, into Deuteronomy, all over the Old Testament where the Jewish people were identified as the true vine. And so all of a sudden, these Jewish disciples who've spent their whole lives learning the Torah, understanding this about themselves, they're here, Jesus say, no, I'm the true vine. But here's the thing. See, when they hear that that idea of being the vine, in their mind, it is associated with the failure of their people, with the condemnation and judgment of God on them. Everywhere that that's talked about in the Old Testament, that's the, that's the story. It's, it, it reeks to them of, the, of their failure. And Jesus says, no, I'm the true vine. You've always fallen short. The kind of fruitfulness that you could not produce, I'm going to produce it for you and in you and through you. 
I am the true vine. And this is, this is Jesus giving these disciples and us an invitation to abide. And that literally means to dwell with, to linger, to stay. He's giving us an invitation to organically come to dwell and draw our life from the vine. He's providing for us, for them, what we cannot provide for ourselves because we get grafted into this vine and it becomes our life source. It's how we access the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And this vine and branch is Jesus' way of showing us with a, with a beautiful picture that they could understand what it means to abide, to be organically connected. So what does that mean for you and I? Look at John 15, 1, 1 through 3. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. So Jesus is the vine identified here. The father is the vine dresser or the gardener, if you will. He's the one who keeps the garden. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So the branches are us. They were his disciples, but not just his disciples. The branches are every disciple that's ever come to follow Jesus. And apparently there are even some branches in that vine who maybe aren't really sure why they're there. But it says if it does not bear fruit, he takes it away. So what it says, if, if you bear no fruit, you get cut off. If you do bear fruit, you get cut back. You get pruned. So to be a Christian is to bear fruit. And if there's no fruit, then it's likely that there's no genuine belief. So how we define fruit really matters when we start to think about it or read a passage like that. You know, I think for many of the Jewish leaders, it, it, for them, fruit was defined by the fact that they actually saw themselves as the true vine. You know, for them, fruit was defined by believing just the right things, by obeying the laws, by doing what they believed was right, even if it often led them to pride and judgment and shame. And you know, in the Bible, the only sin in the Bible that God identifies in any way that he holds us afar off is pride. But here's the thing, pride holds us afar off. It just does. So Matthew 7, 21 through 23 gives us this warning for the dead branches. And honestly, there are several other passages in the New Testament like this. And right before the passage that I'm going to share is the very same analogy about a good tree bearing good fruit and a bad tree bearing bad fruit, and a bad tree can't bear good fruit, and a good tree can't bear bad fruit. And then it goes on to say that on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's a picture of a branch not bearing fruit. You know, the great news about that, none of us, if we're, if we're unsure or if this passage makes us uncomfortable, none of us have to go through our life without becoming sure, without knowing that you're in relationship with Jesus. So what about the one who is bearing fruit and is being pruned? Pruned. I want to show you a couple of pictures just for a minute. I want to show you a picture of a small picture of a vineyard, and this is getting very close to harvest time. And you can see how lush and green and beautiful, I mean, it's pretty amazing. And you can imagine that acres and acres and acres of vineyards that look just like this, covering the hillsides that are just lush with fruit, lush with green, lush with everything that looks fertile and alive and beautiful to our eyes. Okay, that's what it looks like close to harvest time. Now I want to show you what um, a pruned field looks like in the spring after the harvest and it's now they're taking it to dormancy. So this is what a pruned uh, vine looks like. As you can see, all of that beautiful green, it's gone. All of it is gone. Every single vine in the vineyard looks just like that one. Every single one of them has been pruned. There's not one vine in the entire garden that escaped the pruner's shears. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell us here. But the thing is, the beautiful thing is, is that every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it so that what? That it'll bear more fruit. I mean, here's the thing. And this is really important to help us identify. So fruit, this entire passage really is about bearing fruit. It comes up over and over and over again in the passage. Bearing fruit, bearing fruit. One of the best pictures I can give you, every time, almost any time the Bible refers to fruit, it's almost always got something to do or in some way connected to our character. So Galatians 5.22 is the most well-known and the easiest example of all this. And it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. You notice it doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit is love. It says the fruit of the Spirit is love, singular. It's joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there, there is no law. So this fruit is singular because, you know, the fact is they all sort of grow symbiotically together, organically together. So the reality is if you're lacking in love, you probably aren't walking in much joy. And, and if you don't have much joy, you might be struggling to find peace. And if you don't have much self-control, you probably struggle with anger and the thing is that these things all grow together symmetrically. They grow together in one. And so God prunes us so that we might continue to grow in these areas. It's just, it's what happens to us. Let's keep going. Let's look at verses four through eight. It says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine. 
You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide, stay, dwell with, be present. This is describing our organic union with Christ. I am in him and he is in me. This is how God sees us when we are in Christ. He sees you through the righteousness of his son. When we're in Christ and he's in me, God doesn't see me through my sin and my failure. He sees me through the righteousness of Jesus. It was a gift given to me and to you when Jesus died and rose again. And he did this to make us fruitful people, people that would glorify God, people that would reproduce the kind of grace and hope and love that he came to give us. So here's, here's what a true pruned branch that is bearing fruit the truth is it can't produce anything on its own. If it's cut off, if it's separated, it can't reproduce any fruit. It needs the rain, the sun, the soil, the nutrients, and the vital connection between the branch and the vine. It's the source of life. It comes from our drawing on the vine for all of our needs. There's not one thing pruned or taken out of your life that wouldn't have been a loss to keep and a gain to lose. That's really hard to believe sometimes. There's not one thing taken away from our life or that pruned that wouldn't have been a loss to keep and a gain to lose. See, Jesus is after vital organic change through the internal work of God's spirit, not just a mechanical compliance through our willpower, guilt, shame, or moral goodness. This whole imagery, this vine and branch imagery, is designed to help us understand that the internal work of the spirit of God, when we became Christians, the miraculous part of our conversion, of our forgiveness, was that God himself came to be with me and came to be in me, in me, in you, in you. We walk around, God is in us. We, so to abide with him is to be aware and submissive and feeding our understanding of what it means to have God's voice and his spirit in us. It is to take the, the amazing pulsating life of Jesus that comes to us through the inward connection to the vine. Through the Spirit, the promised helper. Here's the thing. I wouldn't be surprised. Matter of fact, I'd be certain of it. That some of us in the room, maybe a lot of us, are in a season of pruning right now. We are. I'm, I'm going to be 67 years old in December. I've been pruned a lot. I have been. I've been through terrible job loss. I've been through betrayal from deep, close friends. I have walked through a long season of cancer with my, my bride. We've buried three of our parents. We have moved and had financial struggles and rebellious teenagers and all of the things. I mean, like, we've been pruned. I've been pruned. And I've been doing ministry for 35 years and I've... 
I've walked alongside a lot of couples, a lot of people, when they're being pruned. You know, I have a great, really, one of my closest friends, many of you in the room would know them. One of my closest friends, his wife had a stroke about six months ago. Actually had five strokes. And it has completely, completely changed their life in every conceivable way. And I have prayed for them, talked with them, visited with them as much as I could. Ann and I have both done as much as we could over the last several months. And we've had lots of honest and tearful conversations over lunches. They're being pruned. But here's the thing. I've watched them. I've watched them draw on the vine. I have. I've watched their strength bowie up. I've watched their hope get stronger. I haven't seen their joy be destroyed. Oh, yes, there's been sorrow. And oh, yes, there have been tears and there's been anger. There has been everything you can imagine that you feel going through something like that. But all the while, I keep watching them draw on this resource that's already in them to keep going, to keep praying, to keep reading the word, to keep in community with other people who will help him, help them draw on the, on the vine. Their community helps them draw on the vine. And I see new shoots coming into their branch even as they're in the middle of it. Here's another thing. I, I've seen, I've had, I mean, I've sat, being a marriage pastor, I've had a lot of couples in my world over time and come in with some really painful struggles and they're being pruned. Our marriages get pruned a lot. We do. Marriage itself prunes us by the covenant promises we've made. It prunes us. It really does. So sometimes I'll have a couple come in and they're in a miserable crisis, incredibly difficult, and I'll, I'll, we'll meet with them and we'll, they'll get help and they'll, and over time, all of a sudden, I will see them. I will literally, I'll watch them draw on the vine for humility. I'll watch them draw on the vine for forgiveness. I'll watch them draw on the vine to own a part of their sin that's harming the relationship. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll watch them just continue. I'll watch them to draw on the vine from the community around them of people who are for their marriage. And, and are saying things to them that maybe they don't think they want to do. And then over time, I see them sometimes, I watch, I watch them heal from the vine, from drawing on the vine. See, then I might have another couple come in in almost the same kind of circumstance, in the same kind of spirit, the same kind of struggle. And over time, I don't... I don't, they struggle to draw on the vine. They, they can't find the resource that God has given them. You know why? Because they've made the vine their marriage. They've made the vine their happiness. They've made the vine their spouse. They've made the vine their children. They've made the vine their income, their house, 
their career. They've made the vine something besides the true vine. And so what happens is they, they're drawing off of something that has no resource. It has nothing to give them power or life or hope or grace or humility or any of the things that bring healing to our soul and to our spirit. Learning to listen to the Spirit, to surrender. Listen to the voice that comes from the Word, from worship, from friends, in the vine, from quiet submission to God. You draw from that connection His presence. And it sometimes is really hard work. But the promise of this passage, and this is the in chapter 14 and chapter 15, the promises in these two chapters are breathtaking. God, Jesus said, I will send you a helper and he will be with you and he will be in you. And Jesus said, I want you to abide in the vine. I want you to understand that when you get pruned back and no one escapes the shears, not a single vine in the vineyard, but when you get pruned back, it is to reproduce better, richer, bigger, brighter, healthier fruit. Every, those, those vines go through that pruning every single year. Every year. And here's the thing. When we draw on the vine, we have the ability to see the good hand of God even in the midst of our pruning. And it changes everything. When, when you see the pruning process as coming, that the, the gardener that's holding the shears is God himself. It changes everything. You know, there's a passage in Hebrews 12, I don't have it on the screen, but it's Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. And when, I was, when we were raising our kids, I, I went to this passage countless times. I did. But I'm going to change the word. The word discipline is used, this, used several times in here. I'm going to change it to the word pruning just as I read it. So it's Hebrews 12, 5 through 11. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline or the pruning of the Lord, for, uh, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines or prunes the one he loves, and he chastises everyone whom he receives. It is for pruning that you have to endure. God is treating you as a son or a daughter. For what son or daughter is there whom his father does not discipline or prune? And if you're left without pruning, in which all have participated, every vine in the field, if not, you are illegitimate children and not sons or daughters. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us or pruned us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they pruned us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he prunes us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, and this is his last part, this is when, this is the shift that the vine provides for our heart and mind. 
For in the moment, all pruning seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So I want you to know that every vine in the vineyard is being trained. All of us. And so Jesus was trying to help us see that the training will transform us. And you know why it'll transform us? Not, because, not just because we, we reproduce fruit, that because we increase our love and our patience and our joy and our gentleness and our kindness and our goodness and our self-control. All those are, hopefully those will be true as we're pruned and as we, as we mature. But what it really does is that inside it shifts you, it shifts your inside to understand that whatever comes along in life, whatever the, whenever the gardener uses the shears, it is for your good. And there is a God who loves us through the hardest things imaginable. Because there are things that happen to us in this life that are not explainable and they're unimaginable and they're awful. And yet, Jesus went through something unimaginable, only explainable by his desire and his love for us. But what it meant for Jesus to be severed from the Father, I don't know. But it, but it was done because he's the vine and we're the branch. And he did it for our benefit, for our good. So the last thing about living, abiding in the vine is that this pruning process, in this, Jesus will teach us, train us, and give us the power to love. Like really love. And you know, verse 6 says, apart from me, you can do nothing, right? Apart from me, you can do nothing. And you know, that has to mean, apart from me, you can't do anything that there's change for eternity, that there's a work going on that only God can do in us. We can't do that apart from him. We can't. Here's the thing, you know, God hasn't come to just torment our ordinary self. He hasn't. He's actually come to kill it. To hand over our ordinary everyday self because he wants to give us a new self. My will would become his. And of course, that's a, that's a lifelong process. I don't know that we ever get to completion this side of heaven. But he wants to be the reason that we do everything. We give up the right to myself, to give up the right to call the shots in my life, or even to decide what is right or wrong. He, he leads us like we are organically connected. John 15, 4 through 9 says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. You know, the branch... Did the branch get the life of the vine because it's fruitful? See, that's what, I, I don't know, I, I've jumped back and forth across that line so many times in my life. 
God loves me because I'm being good. God loves me because I'm trying to be obedient. God loves me because I made the right decision. I, you know, I jump back and forth over that line, but what he's telling us here, does the branch get the life of the vine because it's fruitful? Or is the branch fruitful because it gets the life? And I want, I want to be living in the second part of that phrase. The branch is fruitful because it gets the life from the branch. Because if I'm getting it over here, I'm doing this. I'm getting this done. I'm making this decision. This is my life. Well, then it kind of becomes about me. And so I, I kind of become my own vine, my own vine if you will. I, I'm getting all my sustenance from me, my resources. Sometimes I can fake myself into doing that for a while. 1 John 4.19 says, we love Jesus because he first loved us. His love sources our love for him. His love for you, for me, sources our love for him. So God is the source of our ability to love him and others. I just love, you know, the words stay, dwell, make a home. Abide. Abide. Men I mean, women, I, I just, I wish we all, starting with all of us, could grasp what it means to be aware of God's spirit, to be aware of his voice that's organically connected in us, that wants to abide with us, to be heard by us, to be obeyed by us, to receive his pruning so we become more the person we want to become. Here's the thing again. You're never alone. God's spirit is always present. And we don't always feel him. We don't. But he's there. You're never alone. He's abiding with you. He is both with you and in you. If you have your communion elements, why don't you take those out? Couldn't think of a nicer way to bring this to a close this morning than uh, sharing communion together. In verse 12, it says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now remember, we're hours, just hours from the time that Jesus is going to be arrested and he's going to be marched through the streets, beaten and bloodied, carrying a cross, thrown on the cross, completely naked between two criminals. So he's getting down to these last words he has, these couple of chapters. What do I want to tell these people before I'm gone, before this whole process is visible to them? This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus Christ was about to be cut off so that you and I would just have to be cut back. 
Here's the great thing. See, the more you ponder what Jesus has done for you, the more you ponder, how could I learn to love my spouse or my child differently? How could I respond to a harsh boss? Or how could I respond to the loss in my life, the grief I'm in, the financial struggles, the broken marriage? What if we become more and more aware about the, the work, the love, the grace, the hope, the strength that actually is organically connected to us and we work at drawing from it? I think the more you do that, the more something new, a new shoot can grow. The more we ponder these truths, the more we walk this way, the more we draw sustenance from the vine. So let's take these elements and as we consider Jesus' words, just imagine as he, you know, was even at the Last Supper with those apostles and here he is again telling them, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You think they remembered that? As the days went by and Jesus' death came and his resurrection came and he came, they knew what he did for them. So when Jesus took this bread when he was giving it to the disciples and he broke it in two. And he reminded them again that the broken bread is his body given for you. So let's take the bread together. In the same way he took the cup. And this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Every time you take this, Every time we do this together, we remind ourselves and we give, we feed into the vine who wants to give us his strength as we trust, obey, and believe. We're feeding our branch. So let's take the cup together.